Well, we're in uh, continuing our study in Ephesians chapter 3. There are two prayers in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. I mentioned this two weeks ago. Um, The first one was in chapter 1, where Paul prayed that you may know. Uh, And then tonight we're going to look at the second prayer here in chapter 3 when we get to verse 14. That's our starting verse, that you might be. The first prayer was for enlightenment, and the second tonight is for enablement. Paul prayed in chapter 1 that we might know what Christ has done for us. Now he prays that we might live up to these wonderful blessings and put them to work in our daily lives. Tonight we'll carefully study this second prayer that Paul offers to the Lord, a prayer for strength and for unity. Let's begin in chapter 3, verse 14. I hope you have your Bibles, because we, we do go back and forth here with the Scripture, but it's usually easier for you to have your own Bible. Verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Paul is praying for his family, the whole family, Gentiles and Jews, men and women, free and slaves, past, present, and future, the whole family in heaven and earth. We're all one family as believers, born again into the body of Jesus by the Holy Spirit. After he names us, Paul claims the family resemblance, the family traits and qualities that we all possess, the God-given attributes that enable us to bring honor to the family name. Verse 16, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory. When God hands things out, he does it by the riches of his glory. So Paul makes it clear that our ability to live up to our family name is granted to us from God's rich, abundant resources. And then he says, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. The Lord is the source of our strength. He's talking about our inner man. Paul will say in chapter uh, 6 of Ephesians, he'll say, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Paul tells us that the Lord is the source of our strength Uh, First, to overcome temptations and adversity. And then he tells Timothy that the Lord also gives us strength to share our faith and to witness to others. 2 Timothy 4.17 But the Lord stood with me, Paul said, and strengthened me, so that the message might be preached fully through me and that all the Gentiles might hear. Paul is praying for the inner man, the new creation that dwells within these physical, mortal bodies of ours. You see, the outer man is destined to wither and die. There's no fountain of youth. But the inner person is like a rechargeable battery. It just needs to plug into God, and it can be re-strengthened. That's what Paul is praying Verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. 
Paul seems to be talking about the difference between active and passive states. Christ certainly dwells all, uh, indwells all believers the moment we're born spiritually into his family. But we're not to be passive warehouses where Jesus dwells on the shelf or back in the corner. Uh, we're to be the, a pavilion where active battles are fought and victories are won. Or maybe an arena where Satan and his hordes are defeated by our faith and our reliance on the Savior. And last, we're to be a castle where the King has come to dwell. Paul says, give Christ access to every room, freedom to be at home, to redecorate, and to make the changes that will make him feel completely at home in your life. Paul continues in this verse, that you being rooted and grounded in love. Rooted and grounded. You know, there are many metaphors used to describe a healthy, vibrant child of God. Paul says, I've got them all listed here, you can see them. Paul says that we're citizens of heaven, or a building fitted together, a holy temple, a dwelling place of God. We're God's field, we're God's building, the temple of God. And then Peter adds to that, we're living stones, a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. We're a holy nation, sojourners and pilgrims, bondservants of God. Jesus even said, I am the vine and you are the branches. You see, the image Paul is referring to here in verse 17, it's also found in Psalm chapter 1. It's about the godly man. The godly man is like a tree rooted and grounded in love. The psalmist says, He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. I think that means he's nourished by the Holy Spirit, the living water that we heard about in John chapter 7 on Sunday. It goes on, That brings forth its fruit in its season. Well, I start thinking, what is the fruit that's on this tree that that is our lives. Well, I think this that love is the fruit of this tree. And it says there are seasons. Well, I think there's nine seasons or flavors or situations where the fruit of love needs to ripen in our lives. For instance, times when we need God's love or God-given joy or, or the peace that Jesus promised. Times when... God's patience or long-suffering is required. And I've listed them, the kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control that only the Holy Spirit can produce and ripen and mature in our lives. Every time, each season or situation, <clears throat> you need one of these fruit, the Holy Spirit makes it ripen and mature in your heart. <clears throat> well, where do we find these fruit? Well, you already know. They're the fruit of the Spirit that we find in Galatians chapter 5. We need to be a tree rooted and grounded in love. And the psalm finishes by saying, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he does shall prosper. 
Paul is praying in verse 18 that we may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height. Well, I start thinking of what? Well, I think he's speaking of our capacity. Paul asked God to enlarge our spiritual capacity. Verse 19, our capacity to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. He wants them to be able to grasp Jesus' love on an experiential, first-hand basis. And then he finishes, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Filled to the top, overflowing with the presence of the Lord in our lives experiencing the promise of Jesus that out of my heart will flow rivers of living water. God doesn't just want us to know Him. He wants us to be filled beyond capacity. This was also the prayer of Jabez. Jabez was one of Judah's grandsons. And this is found in 1 Chronicles chapter 4, <clears throat> verse 10. And Jabez called on the God of Israel, saying, Oh, that you would bless me indeed and enlarge my borders, that your hand would be with me. Jabez wanted greater capacity to know and love and serve God. God's love is, is like an ocean. You can take in all you want. The only limitation is the size of your bucket. And Jabez wanted a bigger bucket. Don't you? Verse 20. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. This is the theme of these last seven verses. It's all about Jesus. All about the total sufficiency and adequacy of our Savior. Imagine, God is not only able to meet every need we bring to Him, He's able to do above all that we ask or think. His grace is always greater than our need. Never forget, God can do exceedingly abundantly. Well, on to verse 21. To Him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Well, that's our goal. That's our objective, our ambition, that Jesus be glorified in our lives, individually and together. Well, this brings us to chapter 4. Turn your page. This is where Paul continues challenging us to walk with Jesus every day. He says in verse 1, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord. Well, Paul is reminding us again that Rome is only subletting his prison cell. Paul isn't a prisoner of Rome, he's a prisoner of the Lord. Rome is only providing a place and opportunity for Paul's epistles to be penned. In fact, there's a back door into the palace as a byproduct. From this prison cell, 
the scriptures are being written, and the household of Caesar has been penetrated with the gospel of grace. Thinking of Paul being a prisoner of Jesus, I saw a short video of an American pastor who secretly trained Chinese Christian leaders in a hotel in China. Twenty-two leaders leaders rode 13 hours on a train to sit for eight hours for three long days on a hard, non-air-conditioned hotel floor. They arrived secretly because they would be imprisoned if they were found. And he found out that it would be three years in prison if they were caught. Well, he asked them if any of them had ever been imprisoned. And 18 of the 21 raised their hands. Many, he says in this video, had memorized entire chapters of the Bible not by reading their own Bible, but from pieces of paper with passages of Scripture smuggled into the prison. One lady said, Oh, it's easy. You have much time in prison. Well, these godly believers were going through Paul's same experience. All 18 had been prisoners of the Lord. Paul was writing the Scriptures, and today these men and women were memorizing the Scriptures. Paul continues in verse 1. He says, I beseech or encourage you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Paul has been called to this ministry just as each of us has been called. He says, with which you were called. This is the ministry that every believer is called into. It is the ministry of reconciliation, to reconcile God to men who will open their hearts to Him. We are saved to save others. God has given us all the assignment to reconcile the world back to Him. Paul tells us this in 2 Corinthians, the 5th chapter. I'm going to read two of the verses, 18. Now, all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 20. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. As ambassadors, we represent the king. And Paul says, walk worthy of this calling. It's a high calling. In many places around the world, American tourists are called the ugly Americans because they're exhibiting such loud, arrogant, demeaning, thoughtless, ignorant behavior abroad. They're all poor ambassadors. And This is a famous photo I found taken in 1950 representing the typical tourist in Havana, Cuba. Paul is beseeching, he's begging each of us to represent the Savior by how we walk and by how we treat others. Many people have not rejected Jesus. They've rejected the false caricature of Jesus in the lives of sinful, wayward Christians. In Christ, we have a high calling. 
president, prime minister, premier, these all pale in comparison to being called a Christian, an ambassador for Jesus. In light of our calling, Paul says, we must walk worthy. Verse 2 says, Walk with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. You see, the stature of a godly child of God is not to stand tall and proud, but to be humble and meek, caring for others as Jesus cared for and loved us. Verse 3 says, Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Unity is the slogan and motto of the body of Christ. We're diverse in age, personality, temperament, and humor, but we're united in the Spirit of Christ. The Spirit's unity doesn't abolish our differences. It creates a commonality greater than our differences. We can't manufacture this unity. It's the Spirit's work. But once we receive it, Paul says, we must endeavor to keep it. When misunderstandings or hurt feelings, jealousies, that type of thing threaten the unity of the Spirit, Paul says we must endeavor, actively fight to protect it. You see, the Lord, well, He's created a wonderful family here at Open Gate. When you enter through the doors, when you get to, or come on the grounds, I should say, you sense the unity of the Spirit. But it's up to us to do exactly what Paul says. We must walk in lowliness, gentleness, patience, and tolerance with one another. As he says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. Paul continues to talk about unity in verse 4. He says, there is one body and one Spirit. The body of Christ is united by one Spirit. He lives in us. And He unites us. We're a melting pot of spiritual love. Paul continues, Just as you were called in one hope of your calling. Well, this tells us that there is one hope. Our hope is heaven. So there's one heaven. Now, there might be a Calvary Chapel neighborhood. Well, I even doubt that. Jesus go, or Paul goes on to say, There's one Lord in verse 5. I like how... Pastor Sandy Adams says, We all say yes, sir, to the same person. Our goal is to please and glorify Jesus. And then Paul says there's one faith. This speaks of the truth of the Scriptures. There won't be any debates or disputes in heaven about what any particular verse means. And then one baptism. This is the act of, Baptism is the act of identifying each of us with Jesus. The word comes from the textile industry where they dipped a cloth into a vat of colored dye. From that time forward, that piece of cloth was identified or known by that color. There is one baptism that takes place at the moment that we're saved, done by the Spirit of God identifying each of us with Jesus from that time forward. Verse 6, he says, 
There is one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. The number one. Well, someone said that one is the loneliest number. But in the gospel of grace, one is the all-inclusive number that brings unity to the body of Christ. In verse 7, we come to the diverse and varied expression of everyone in this body of our unity. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. <clears throat> the diversity of the church <clears throat> is best seen in the individual gifts given to each member. Just as the circulatory system of veins and arteries connects every part of the human body with oxygenated blood, it's the blood of Jesus that flows through every member of the body of Christ, bringing unity. Verse 8, Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. The ascension of the Savior, recorded in Acts chapter 1, was in essence the victorious return home of the king, declaring the future but inevitable captivity of the enemy. The loss of the king here on earth also required God giving the gift of the Holy Spirit, whose ministry contains all the spiritual gifts needed for the body uh, of Christ to function. Jesus said it in John chapter 16, verse 5, But now I go away to him who sent me, down to verse 7. It is to your advantage that I go away. For I do, if I don't go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. This gift of the Holy Spirit encapsulates all the other gifts God has given to us. It is his freedom to work through us that empowers and enables any of our gifts and abilities to succeed. Verse 9. Now this, quote, he ascended, unquote. What does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Well, this is an interesting two verses, and I like how Pastor Sandy Adams explained these verses. Here's how he said it. He said, well, this here is Jesus' itinerary between his death and his resurrection, what he did for those three days. He first descended into the lower parts of the earth. While his body lay in the ground, his spirit descended to Hades. Luke 16 describes this place. Hades, um, uh, Sandy says, was a, is, was a duplex. It was divided into two sides, a good side and a bad side, separated by a huge gulf. Those who died believing God's promises went to paradise. Unbelievers went to the place of torment. In the Old Testament, before the work of Christ on the cross, the door into the presence of God was closed. 
The blood sacrifices covered man's sin, but it didn't erase their sins. Hades served as a a holding tank for heaven until Jesus, the Lamb of God, came and offered the sacrifice to end all sacrifices, sin's permanent solution. As soon as Jesus conquered sin, he descended into Hades and gathered up all of these Old Testament believers who had trusted in God's salvation. They became his captives. General Jesus then led these happy captives into the halls of heaven to the praise of a cheering crowd. Then Jesus began to give gifts to those still on the earth. And he still gives gifts to each of us. There are certain spiritual gifts to help build up his body. Today, though, when a believer dies in Jesus, he no longer goes to this holding tank, this Hades. He goes straight into the presence of God. Paul told the Corinthians to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And Jesus, he's still giving gifts, various spiritual gifts to his people. In verse 11, Paul lists these specific gifts that enable the normal functioning of the church. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. The wording here implies that these Holy Spirit gifted men and women are given to the church. I ask the question, does each local body have each and all of these gifted servants given to it? Or are some of these gifted servants uh, men and women like Billy Graham or Chuck Smith, Mother Teresa or J. Vernon McGee, Martin Luther or Corey Ten Boom? People of our lifetime, are they given just to the invisible, universal body of Christ? Well, one thing we do know, we know why they are given. Verse 12 tells us, for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying or building up of the body of Christ. Paul makes it clear that these gifted servants are given to us to prepare, protect, and direct the functioning and growth of the body of Christ. We may not all be pastors or evangelists or teachers, but we are all to grow and mature in our walk with the Lord that we minister to each other. You see, God wants every member of the body to be a minister. Seems like I've heard that before. You see, the pastor's job isn't to do all the work of the saints, the witnessing, the ministering, the the visiting, the counseling. The pastor's job is to equip all of us to minister. We teach you God's Word so that you'll have the knowledge and insight to help others who are hurting and in need. Verse 13. Till we all come to the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This end goal of the church is only achieved when each of us meet the Savior 
face to face. But our goal as a body of believers here and now is to help each other grow daily to be as fully like Jesus as we can possibly be. With the practical goals of verse 14, that we no longer should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. I think Paul comes back down to earth in these two verses. These gifted servants are given to each of us that we might learn from and appropriate the teaching and insights, examples and leadership that they provide. That we may grow up in our faith, solid in our doctrine, mature in our spiritual walk, faithful to minister to others, and deeply in love with Jesus. Verse 16, From whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Well, this describes a healthy, strong, nourished, and fully developed body of Christ with the absence of spiritual disease, ailments, or disorders. You see, Jesus is a bodybuilder. He's building up his body one believer at a time. We all have a place, and everyone's growth is crucial. And notice again, that love is the core of all that is truly done in the name of Jesus. Jesus said in John 13, By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. In verse 17, Paul reminds us of our past. This I say therefore and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. The unbeliever doesn't have the whole picture. They walk futilely. They make bad choices because they don't understand the spiritual consequences of their actions. I think there's a certain progression of sin. It comes from the heart of man that's wicked. And then our minds devise the sin and our hands and feet act them out. Jeremiah said this in chapter 17, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. This is the same three-step process of sin for everyone, from the heart to the mind to the doing of it. That's why Paul tells us as believers, our hearts are changed in the presence of the Holy Spirit, but our minds are still a battlefield where Satan and the world attacks us. 
Paul says in Romans chapter 2, 12, verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The world seeks to squeeze us into its mold. The flesh battles against the spirit. Paul says in verse 17 here, No longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. Verse 18, Having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. Don't walk in the darkness of spiritual ignorance, darkness that blinds the heart. Walk in the path where God shines His light. And then verse 19, who they are, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. You see, verses 18 and 19 describe the enemy. Their hearts are blind. Their minds are futile. Their feelings are calloused. And their intent and desires are greedy. I like how C.S. Lewis once described the world without Christ in the Chronicles of Narnia. He said, It's a land where it's winter all year long, but never Christmas. It's a dark, cold, and lonely place without Christ. Verse 20, But you, you have not so learned Christ. All this changed for us when our spirit was given life when our hearts were enlightened, when we learned and experienced Christ. Verse 21, If indeed you have heard Him and have been taught by Him as the truth is in Jesus, those with ears to hear have indeed heard Him. We've heard Jesus. He's taught us the truth. The truth that as God's children, we don't have to live in the clutches of the enemy. At the cross, victory has already been won. We're, perhaps we could call ourselves prisoners of war, our hearts captured by the Savior. We can take off the old enemy uniform and put on our new robe of righteousness with its available armor. Paul says it's as easily done as changing clothes. This is how you dress for success. Verse 22, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the, the deceitful lusts. What makes this easy is also what makes it possible. It's possible to put off our old sinful self with all of its selfish, insatiable desires because by faith, our sinful self was nailed to the cross with Jesus. Galatians 2.20 tells us this. We have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. But Jesus Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, I only 
simply need to claim this promise that Christ, by His Spirit, when I choose to live by faith, lives in and through me. Verse 23, Paul tells us, Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. By faith, Lord Jesus, I bury that old uniform of sin. You see, this is the work of the Holy Spirit. It's a work of faith. It's not me trying harder, grunting and groaning to stop failing. It's the work of God's grace, directing, strengthening, and transforming my will and my mind to let go, to say no, and to say yes to Jesus. Verse 24, And that you put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. And by faith, Lord Jesus, I accept my new uniform of righteousness, clothing you have provided for me. I give your spirit full freedom in my life. Verse 25 says, Therefore, well, we come to another therefore, because the Lord lives in us and enables us to put on the new man. We can walk worthy of our calling. Our behavior can glorify Christ. Paul suggests, let's start with our reputation, our character. So he says, putting away the first layer of clothing, putting away lying. Let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. And then the clothing of self-control or self-discipline. Put this on too. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Well, this is a key to all relationships, especially family and most important, marriage. Keep your guard up. Satan is looking for any way he can hurt you or anyone else who's close to you. Paul warns us in verse 27, Nor give place or an opportunity to the devil. You see, it doesn't take much for Satan to have a foothold in our lives. There's nothing like smoldering anger to give the devil traction. Verse 28, let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Oh, this is the kind of turnaround that God can do in the human heart. Take off that burglar's mask and put on your worker's gloves. That's what Paul is telling us. Verse 29. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. Because Paul is in full agreement with James who says, Let no man, but no man can tame the tongue. It's an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. You see, only the new man can control his mouth by depending on the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. The spirit-filled believer not only start, stops speaking words of anger, he also speaks out with encouraging, instructive words of wisdom. 
That's what it says next in this verse. Here's what we should do, but how we should speak. But what is good for necessary edification or building up, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Well, Paul sums up these admonitions. They all come under one heading found in verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You see, the Spirit sorrows over our sin. There's been two things we've been told about the Holy Spirit. Quenching the Spirit and here grieving the Spirit. Quenching the Spirit avoids doing what the Spirit prompted you to do. Whereas here grieving the Spirit is just the opposite. You do what God has told you not to do. Let's neither hinder nor grieve the work of God's Spirit. Verse 31. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, that's loud quarreling, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. These are the badges and insignias and medals that decorate the uniform worn by the old man. Paul says, keep these clothes in the closet. Take them off. Put them away. Wear your new company uniform or perhaps your new family uniform with honor. Verse 32, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. You know, Paul may still be reflecting on the anger that he mentioned in verse 26, because anger does seem to be at the root of many evil issues. The Lord wants our response to other people's anger and their criticism and their accusation. He wants our response to be kindness and forgiveness. But this verse didn't stop at forgiving one another. Paul adds on the end of this verse, just as God in Christ forgave you. This ups the ante, doesn't it? We should forgive others as fully and freely as Jesus forgave us. Let's bow together and pray. Lord, teach us these truths. Teach us, Lord, how to take off the old garment and put on the new. Teach us, Lord, that by Your Spirit we have the strength and the inclination and the skills and the gifts to serve You, to live for You. So, Lord, that's our prayer, that we would be faithful to You, that we would walk worthy of our calling. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being with us. <laughs> it's been lonely, but I hope the Lord has used His Word to touch your heart. God bless.